I want you and I want me to think the way God thinks about authority. Amen. I want us to fear authority where it ought to be feared. I want us to humble ourselves and obey it where it ought to be obeyed. I want us to recognize a froward master, a froward husband, a froward father, a froward pastor, a froward king, president, or congress, and still give them the honor that they deserve because of their office. I want us to recognize abuses of power and know when we ought to submit to abuses of power and when we ought to avoid abuses of power. I want us to understand the principles of authority that God's Word gives us. This is a manual of how to live in this world. It's a manual for those in authority. It's a manual for those under authority on how we ought to live. And I'm trying to teach that to you and to me as we make this study. We've defined authority as that ordinance of God whereby He's created offices to control the lives of men. God has not left five billion people on this planet to simply do as every man sees right in his own eyes. That's anarchy and it's a mess. He has ordained positions of authority so that the human race can be properly governed and controlled and directed to wise ends for themselves and for the glory of God. And he places men in those offices and gives them the right to that authority and it's their job to take it and it's our job that are under them to submit to them. And it's all the ordinance of God. Now we have looked extensively at the source of authority. Where does authority come from? And I want to emphasize again the most important, one of the most important things I can give you from God's word on this is that God ordained it. And you say, well, I know that from Romans 13. Well, do you really know it? Do you really know that your husband is God's representative for your life as women? Do you as children really know that your parents are God's representatives for you in this world until you establish your own home, and even then, they have a position of honor over you? Do you really understand that the pastors of Christ's local churches have authority, and they are not only allowed to rule, they're commanded to rule, and the members under their care are to submit themselves to those pastors? Do you really understand that our government, whether it be the local policeman or the uh, local building permit officer or our Congress and our Supreme Court are men and offices that God has established? Right. Do you understand that your forward boss, who's got half the intelligence you do, that you could easily run the office or the plant better than he does, God placed him there to be over you. Now, I'm I'm saying that with tongue-in-cheek. Sometimes it's true, most of the time it's not. But even when it's true, he still has that position. Do you know that God created them? That marriage is God's ordinance, and not the evolutionary process of men figuring out how people can get along together adequately? The minute you think that way, then the whole subject of authority is up for debate and discussion, and evolution. And we can modify it, change it, maybe make it into a partnership and improve on it. There is no improvement on what I'm giving you. Because God established these things 6,000 years ago with the formation of this planet, the people upon it. And he gave men certain dominion and spheres of authority, and it cannot be improved upon. 
And that is the that is the bedrock of any discussion of authority. Amen. It cannot be improved upon. The idea of democracy is from hell, not from heaven. Right. Amen. You say, but God's blessed our nation under a democratic form of government. God has blessed our nation in spite of a democratic right. form of government. Not because of, but in spite of. God has never subscribed to a democratic processes. He's always subscribed to autocratic rulers. Right. Despotic rulers. That means the authorities in one man. Read it in your Bibles. He does not believe in management by committee. He does not believe in marital partnerships. He doesn't believe in family councils. He believes in autocratic rule. And if there's a blessing in any relationship without that, it's, by, it's because of God's intervention and His mercy and His grace. Right. We've looked at the authority, the source of authority. God ordained the offices. God said, I will create two sexes. One sex will rule over the other sex in marriage. It was that simple. God established it. Right. I will bring children into this world absolutely helpless, and their parents will rule over them. For the purpose of economic enterprises, I will make some men masters, and by providence get them into a position of leadership, and others will be their servants. And together, by the wise man being the master, and the grunts being the servants, we will get a lot done. I will regulate my worship by having one man that I have gifted and called to direct how I am worshipped. And then I will set up kings or judges or other leaders that will direct political entities, nations, kingdoms, empires. God established all those things. The source of authority is first, God created the offices. The second is that God providentially prepares men to fill those offices, and we've spent enough time on that, I won't even review it. Then God providentially gets the men he's prepared to the office. Right. We, we looked at a number of examples, and there's more that we didn't look at. Not only does God, however, create the office, prepare the man, and get the man to the office, God directs the man's heart while he's in the office. You say, but I've seen men in office abuse their power. Are you calling in question whether God governs this universe or not? Uh, what's the purpose of your question? So, what about your observation? What does it prove? It proves that God took a man's heart that was in a position of authority and blinded it to abuse the power of the office for some providential purpose. Right. God has done... How many times has God done that? How many times has God blinded or left a man in a position of authority as a trial, as a temptation, as a judgment on those under his authority? It happens all the time. Men are subject to those in authority over them. You say, but it isn't fair. You're fighting against someone greater than you or me. You're Amen. fighting against God. It is fair. It's absolutely fair. It's not your place to overthrow it. It's our place to submit to it. God has a providential purpose in the abuse of power. You say, but isn't there something we can do? We'll get to that. And that is not the major theme of the Bible when it comes to authority. The major theme of the Bible when it comes to authority is submit and grin, and bear it. And that's thankworthy. You know, it only counts if you can obey a master that abuses power. If you obey a master that is a good leader, that is kind and gentle, 
and good to you, you haven't proved anything. Right. All you've proved is that you're interested in yourself, and the only way that you can obey another person is if they're giving you what you want. But when you've got to submit to someone who tells you you can't have what you want, and who mistreats you and makes promises he doesn't keep and doesn't give you the promotion when he promised it to you and uh, doesn't give you the vacation on the week that you planned for it and all those things that people just throw fits about at the office place or in a place of work. When you've got a boss like that and you can still submit to him and cheerfully do what he commands you to do, then you've done something God Almighty takes notice of. Then God takes notice of that. The office, the preparation of the man, the man in the office, and the way that man's heart is at any point in the office. You say, well, the person I'm under authority right now, I don't care if it's a husband, father, pastor, king, or master, you say, I wish his spirit was better than pray about it. You want to know one thing you can do for someone in authority? You can pray that God will bless his spirit to be good, kind, and gentle. I then pointed out that the emphasis in the Bible is not for those that are in authority to come down and force submission. You know, there's not that many verses in the Bible to those that are in authority. The verses in the Bible are to those under authority. Because we're dealing with the source of authority. God makes the office. God prepares the man. God puts the man in the job. God stirs up the man. But from a human standpoint, authority is established by the consent of the governed according to God's ordinance. God ordains the office and man and the way the man exercises himself in the office. But then all the commands of Scripture are for men to submit themselves. There's little discussion in the Word of God about masters crushing their servants. It's masters be good and kind and gentle to your servants. And it's servants obey your masters. The emphasis is those under authority because that's what makes authority work. A king cannot come into power and force a nation to submit to him. How is one man from a throne going to get maybe three million subjects to obey him? How is he going to do that? The three million subjects have got to recognize there's a God in heaven, God created kings, therefore we ought to submit. That's why there's a problem in America, because this is not taught. This is not taught. Where do you get authority from if this isn't taught? You don't have authority. You have democratic processes that don't work. That's right. You have partnerships and management by committee and checks and balances of power in Washington that mean no power and no accomplishment. Amen. You say, but those checks and balances save us from abuses. If you put your, if you want to put your confidence in checks and balances, go ahead. But you're not worshiping my God because my God is the great check and balance on all authority. Amen. Checks and balances don't do it. Look at the abuses they're taking right now of our lives. Look at the inroads they're making and the encroachment they're making right now on our economic liberties, on our religious liberties, what they're trying to pass as far as laws relative to our, the education of our children, the way we treat our children in our own homes. Checks and balances. Checks and balances. All you do is when you take a bunch of men and average out their decisions together, you get an average decision. When you're talking about men, that's a perverse decision. Right, isn't it? Give me some man that God's got a hold of in one position of authority. Now, God can, God can influence a democratic form of government as fast as he can an autocratic form of government. Don't let me, tell, don't let me imply that because there's 1,000 men involved, God's a 1,000 times slower getting his will accomplished in the United States. He can do it both ways. Right. But his way 
is to have authority centralized. You say, well, I thought we believed in the decentralization of power. Well, God believes in the centralization of power, and He always has. The emphasis in the Word of God is for us to submit. But there's another source of authority that I'd like to emphasize, and that is, where does this submission come from? This submission that God expects of men toward rulers that He's created, where does it come from? This is an important question. This is an important consideration. Let me first of all back up and repeat something from last Sunday night. A king. God appointed a king. God took a little shepherd boy named David and said, I'm going to, have, I'm going to make you the next king of Israel. How did David become king? Now, God said he was king. Does that mean he marched on Jerusalem, walking down the street by himself? I'm your king. I'm your king. And getting to Jerusalem, and going to reign on the throne? All of Israel came together and made him their king. All Israel came together and made a covenant. You will be our king. Now there was their voluntary consent for David to be their king. God had said, this is your king. The people said, you are our king. They voluntarily consented. What happens after that? Who's responsible to keep them submitting? The king. Did you... You follow that? It's, now, the king has to sit there. And his, his pulse is about 120. The sweat's pouring out of all the sweat glands. And he's wondering, will the people make a league with me and submit? You, if you don't believe that, go read the psalm, Psalm 144, where David thanks God for subjecting his people under him. Right. There is that moment of proof. It's the same moment of proof when a man supposedly drops to his knee and says, will you marry me? You know, that's the moment of proof. The woman right there voluntarily consents to his authority. If she says, I do, she makes, him her, she makes him her ruler. From that point on, whose job is it to keep her submitting? The husband. What gets it started? The submission of the one under authority. That moment in time is a commitment for the future. It is not just a commitment for the moment. And a woman cannot, cannot say a year later, I don't. And undo the authority. Now, they often try that. I won't. I don't and try to undo the authority, but they've established it by a covenant. And the people of Israel made David king. And as I pointed out last Sunday night, what if 10,000 in the tribe of Benjamin had said, we're sick of David. We want to make our own king. What would David's job have been? To send 20,000 of Judah to wipe out the 10,000 of Benjamin to maintain his authority. That's proper ruling. Now he's also to do it with kindness and affection and not increasing taxes too quickly in order to keep the submission of his people. And it's the same way with the husband. He gets the consent of his wife to make him her Lord. And then, through a combination of affection, wise leadership, and enforcement, he keeps her submitting. It's the way it is in all relationships. Pastors are told to take the oversight of a congregation, but a congregation is told to submit to those that have the rule over you. It's a mutual compact. We made it six and a half years ago. And then it's a job of those in authority to keep control of those that are under their authority. Every master is supposed to do that. When do you tell your master he's your master? When you take the job. From that moment on, guess who's supposed to keep that authority? He doesn't have to ask you every morning, do we still have a working relationship this morning for me to tell you what to do? It's his job to enforce that with threats, demotions, and pay cuts. 
or to fire you, to threaten the others that are working for them. That's how authority works. But I want to move on to another point. That, that submission to authority, does it stem, in principle, from love and respect for the man in authority, or does it stem from fear and conscience toward God? What makes authority work? Love and affection for the man in authority, or fear of the man in authority and a conscience toward God? Now, I'm going to show you Bible verses. It's fear toward God, fear toward the man, and a conscience of God. And we, we live in a generation where everybody believes that this thing called authority is so watered down. It is so watered down that it's now a toast relationship of winning the cooperation of someone. Now, that is a part of authority. See, it's about this base. And authority is about this base. And it's about that base. But in our society, it's almost the entire relationship of authority winning the cooperation of someone by being nice. That is a part of it, but that isn't it. The Bible teaches that true authority is based on fear of the office and conscience toward God. There ought to be such a strong conscience in the heart of men because they have been grounded in the proper principles of authority that they look at the office as God's representative on earth and there isn't a question about disobeying it. So that it stems from fear and conscience toward God rather than, he's a really nice boss. I really like him. That doesn't work. Do you know what happens when that really nice boss has to get nasty? They say, forget you, I'm not going to do it. You ornery ogre. You are so unfair. You're such a rotten... That's pitiful. It's subject to human emotion, then. That isn't the way it's supposed to work. Look at some of the... What's more important? What is more important to authority? Respect or fear? Fear. Authority can work without any respect, based solely on fear. Now, the best way is that you have both. But authority can't function just based on respect. It's got to have a basis of fear. We live in a generation where there's a lot, a much ado is made over, you know, the importance of love in our marital relationships. You know, all the women in the last few generations have had the choice of their lives. They've all been able to choose their Tommy Motorcycle or Joe Super or whoever they wanted to choose to be their husbands. Now, that's, the, that's, a, that's a freak. That's a freak in the history of the world. In the history of the world, fathers chose husbands for their daughters based on a man's perspective of who would make a good father for his daughter. In the last few generations, women have got this great privilege of being able to choose somebody they love and respect. You know, you talk to some girl who thinks that she's very intelligent, and she'll tell you about how she loves and respects someone. Love and respect does not make it. We have two generations to prove it. Anybody in here know the divorce rates for the last two generations in this country? 50%, one out of two. That's when women get to make the choice based on love and respect. Give me a generation, and I know what you do in your minds. You say that no one was ever happy. You are wrong. If God set up that way, they were happier than they are today. Amen. You give me a generation where women are put into marriages many times where they never even saw the man they were married to, but they had spent 15 years being grounded in proper authority and fear of a husband and a conscience toward God, and I'll show you a divorce rate a whole lot less than 50%. Right. 
You say, well, the only way they kept it less than 50% is they stoned those who divorced. Is that how you look at the Word of God? I look at the Old Testament and I see a nation that was set up under God's law, and that's the way it is. That's the way, if you want to do it the best, that's the way it ought to be done. Amen. When God established the laws for that nation. You know, in our generation, women get to choose their husbands based on quote, love, unquote, their respect, and so forth, and oh, he's such a nice guy. Isn't he sweet? Isn't he sweet? And what's that going to do 20 years from now? What's that going to do for the next 20 years, day by day? Isn't he sweet? Is he a leader? Does he know how to exercise authority? Is he a ruler? That's what counts. And that's what will make a marriage, regardless of what you think. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. What is the basis for authority? Is it love and respect for the man in authority? Or is it fear and of conscience toward God? 1 Peter chapter 3. I, I hope that especially men, because this is, you know, I preach mostly to men. And that's not because I dislike women. I just believe the book is more geared to the men because they control the society. And they control families. And they, in turn, to teach their wives and children at home. But men have worked in the workplace. Ever worked for a boss that you didn't really respect very much personally? Really couldn't stand him? I mean, did you, did you still obey him? I, I, hope, I hope we all still obeyed them simply based on the fact that that was God's man. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's what a uh, marriage is to be based on. Notice in verse 1 it says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. There's the subject under consideration. Verse 2, While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, women can win unconverted husbands by chaste conversation mixed with fear. Now the fear there is twofold, and we'll see it as we look at other verses. It's the fear of the husband. And it's the fear of God that makes them afraid of the husband. Coupled with fear. Now, I know what the sixth verse says. The sixth verse says, don't be so afraid of your husband that you're amazed. Which means to be stupefied or being unable to think. There comes a point where a woman's got to think and obey God rather than her husband. I know that, and it's there in verse 6. But that's not my point right now, and don't miss the point of verse 2. The relationship of subjection to a husband is based on fear. It doesn't say, well, they behold your chaste conversation coupled with love, coupled with respect, coupled with, he's really a nice guy. It's coupled with fear. That is the basis for authority actually working. We need to have marriages and family relationships based on fear rather than some fickle emotional relationship. Because a fickle emotional relationship, whenever a trying event comes up, is going to fall apart and hang you by it. If you're the one in authority, it's got to be based on fear. Great fear. And it's amazing how easy it is to establish that in children if you begin at an early age. The Bible just talks about it as being second nature. If a man will take charge of his children at a young age, he can build that fear. Now look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 deals with servants being subject to their masters. Verse 18. If you'll notice in the epistles, you'll, in Ephesians and in Colossians, you'll find out that you start with wives, you go to husbands, you go to children, you go to fathers, you go to servants, you go to masters. I mean, some people think that maybe I'm wasting my time and I'm preaching something that's not part of the gospel of Christ. Go read the epistles. That's right. They, Paul just rolls right through them. 
Ephesians chapter 5, wives. Ephesians chapter 5, husbands. Ephesians chapter 6, children. Fathers, servants, masters. Because these are the relationships that count, brethren. You're going to go out of here tomorrow, and you're not going to be spending all your time thinking about the miracles of Jesus. You're going to go out of here tomorrow, and you're going to be thinking about, I can't stand my boss. I don't want to get up and go to work today. I don't want to, I don't want to do that for my husband. You know, he, he wants me to go out and buy tires for the car. I don't like buying tires. I can't stand making decisions about tires. And he wants me to go buy tires for the car. I don't know if we need 70s or 78s, whether they're 14 or 15 inch ramps. I don't know. I hate them. But he told you to do it. You're going to go do the best you can. That's where, that's where we live. Tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And next Sunday we come back to look at more miracles of Jesus. But in between, and I am not, you understand me, don't you? I love the miracles of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus ought to give us confidence and faith in between. But right now, this is where we live. This is where we live. 1 Peter chapter 2, servants. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. And notice why. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Right in the verse, could you respect a, a forward master? Do you know what the word forward means? Perverse. Strange. Obnoxious. You've got an obnoxious master. How are you going to respect him? you respect obnoxious people? I mean, if, if it wasn't for fear in this verse, we're lost. Right. There'd be anarchy in the world. Because as soon as we met a boss we didn't like, you know, it'd be the old thumb goes to the nose and the fingers start waving. And we walk off the job. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle. I mean, it's easy to obey a good and gentle boss. But also to the forward. For this is thankworthy. Verse 19. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. You've got a boss that is so bad, he makes you suffer wrongfully. He is mistreating you. He is wrong. The Bible doesn't say masters are never wrong. It says he is wrong. How do you treat a master that is wrong? Well, I go tell him he's wrong. You belong in Jude chapter. You, you belong in Jude verses eight through ten, and Second Peter chapter two verses ten through twelve. Right. You're speaking evil of dignities. It's not your place to go tell your boss that he's wrong. Who do you think you are? You're a grunt. If you're a servant. You say, but God gave me intelligence too. Yeah, I remember some men that once said that in the Old Testament. They said, isn't the whole congregation holy? What happened to them? The earth swallowed them up. Everybody remember, you remember that? Right. You know, you're not the only ones that hold holy Moses. Who do you think you are? I'll get to more verses on what I'm saying. You don't go tell your boss he's wrong. You say, well, what if he invites me into his office and asks if there's anything that I can do better? Well, then tell him. You've got a, if you've got a moment of time like that, take advantage of it. He's given it to you. It's a privilege. He's granted. But it's not your place to go tell your boss he's wrong. What does God say to do? Be subject with all fear while they're mistreating you. Be subject with all fear while they're mistreating you. For this is thankworthy. That's something that God can thank you for. That is something that's commendable. When you submit to a man who is causing you to suffer wrongfully, who's mistreating you, and you're enduring the grief of a bad master, or you're enduring the grief of a bad husband, or you're enduring the grief of a bad father, or you're enduring the grief of a bad pastor, if he has not 
flagrantly contradicted scripture, which gives you something to fight with, you are to endure it. And every man in authority is going to do that from time to time and lots of times. But what is the basis for submitting to a man like that? Conscience toward God. Do you see it in that 19th verse? Conscience toward God. What makes a man willing to unclench his fists, relax his hands, let his arms fall down, relax his body, smile, let the red flush drain out of his face, the violent, vile words leave his throat and lips, and submit to a man who's abusing him in a position of power. What causes him to do that? A regenerate heart and conscience toward God, brethren, it's an opportunity to show your faith like no other time, practically, in this world. That's right. Is to submit because of conscience toward God. Not because you like the man. Listen, you couldn't like this man. This man is mistreating you. This man's a forward master. You're doing it because of conscience toward God. And listen, this is life. Every one of you women in here, we could stop right now and I could take up 15 minutes for every one of you women. Every one of you women are under a husband and there are times where you endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Everyone knows that. Your husbands know that. I know that. And most of all, God knows it. Because you know what? We're all forward husbands from time to time and lots of times. Guess what? What, what's supposed to bolster you up at a time like that to be a good wife? Conscience toward God and all fear. Fear of the office, fear of God, and conscience toward God that God put this man over me. It is not a fluke, and it's too late to go back. It's just like the nation of Israel. David, three years into his office, could have said, I'm doubling taxation. That is no basis to overthrow him. He could have enforced it. That's right. Once you're into that relationship, you submit to it, and you get your courage in it, and you're, you're helped in it by a conscience toward God. That man is the man God wants for me. You say, but I could have chosen a different man. You chose that man, and that's God's providence. Right? If you chose him or not, or your, husband, your father arranged it for you. It is now the man God, by providence, has put over you. Forget all that questioning in your mind, and submit by conscience toward God. The last part of verse 20 says this is acceptable with God. Listen, sometimes I'll be a forward pastor. Sometimes I will neglect you. Sometimes I will do things you don't understand. And I am not defending me because I really don't care about me personally, but I do the office and I'll defend all five offices equally. Submit with a conscience toward God. And pray for me. And every other position of authority that we have to do the same thing in. Look at Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. This is an important point. A, health, a healthy relationship of submission and authority is not based on love and respect. It's based on fear and conscience toward God. Because I'll tell you, love and respect go out the window from time to time. I mean, there are times where wives don't love their husbands and children don't love their parents and members don't love their pastors. What do we rely on then to keep a church functioning? <laughs> Fear. You say, well, are you going to browbeat us? Are you turning over a new leaf in your ministry? A ministry that you're going to browbeat us? No, I'm not going to do that. I hope there's a fear based on conscience toward God to keep this church together in the proper relationship that God expects us to have. 
But I'm telling you, respect and love, they go out the window from time to time. That isn't what keeps relationships working. What keeps them working is all fear. Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. You look at your master as it is Christ that you're serving as it's Christ that put that man there, and do it with fear and trembling, not love and respect. Do you notice the point I'm trying to make? In all these verses, you won't find love and respect. Because love and respect won't keep the relationship going. Because love and respect go bye-bye many times. And you've got to rely on fear. Fear isn't a bad thing. And I don't mean a fear that makes you want to run away from your husband, or run away from your pastor, or run away from your boss. I'm in a fear that makes you want to submit and obey Him because God Almighty is watching you. And this is God's man that God's given you. I mean, we could look at verses and verses and more verses. I don't know how many more, more to look at. You're, you're near Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Leviticus chapter 19 says, Thou shalt fear. Turn to Colossians, but Leviticus 19 says, Thou shalt fear every man his father and every man his mother. Where does it say in the Bible that children ought to love their parents? Lay the text on me. I got Leviticus 19.3, though, that says, Thou shalt every man thou shalt fear, every man shall fear his father, and every man shall fear his mother. Because authority toward parents is based on fear, not on love and respect and affection and all those vacillating human emotions that never hold anything together. That's why God's word doesn't emphasize that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. What's the basis for children obeying your parents? Does it say, children, obey your parents in all things, for they changed your diapers between the ages of 0 and 5, and they sent you to school and provided Wheaties every morning on the breakfast table, and therefore you ought to treat them kindly? There's none of that. It's children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. There has got to be a fear of God and a knowledge that my dad and my mom are the two human beings out of five billion that God wanted me to have. Do you believe that that clearly? That out of five billion, you say, I don't like my mom. My mom's irritated me in certain ways she lives. God said that woman was going to be your mother. Right. And you are to obey her and honor her because God picked her for you. Right. He could have picked anyone for you, but he picked your mother for you. And I believe in the providence of God 101% this evening that it's a perfect match. Amen. There's things you learn through that relationship that if you look back and submit yourself to Scripture, God has taught you things through that relationship by which you can benefit others and you can have a greater appreciation for your Heavenly Father. And I know there are people in here that hurt because of the relationship with your parents. I said it last Sunday evening. But nonetheless, God chose those parents for you. Right. And we are to obey them, not because we agree with them, not because we like them, not because they're cool and wicked parents, not anything like that. We are to obey them because this is well-pleasing unto God. That is what makes authority relationships work. You know, everyone today, take your kids to showbiz pizza, have quality time with them every evening, play checkers with them, read them bedtime stories, and you will have a wonderful family. Oh, no, you won't. You will have children rise up and tear your head off and break your heart. 
You say, don't you believe in any of those things? That isn't even the point. Yes, I believe in all those things. I probably hug my children more than you thought about it. Probably. And I'm no hero. I'm making up for lost time. As those of you who know me very long know. But I want to say one thing. That's not the way you have a relationship that lasts. The relationship that lasts is one of fear. It's when Dad looks at his children cross-eyed or with an angry frown on his face and says about two words, and they are absolutely ready to have their loins loosed. That's right. And you know, until about the age of seven, you can do that rather easily. And you say, that's a terrifying family relationship. That's a glorious family relationship. Amen. That is the one the Bible speaks of. That's right. Fearing parents. You know, there's no problem as long as there's obedience. I hope I have emphasized that point sufficiently. This is not a sermon on child training. Every authority relationship in the Bible is based on fear. I can turn you to all of them, but we, I want to keep moving in this study. Let's. We've, we're, what we've been doing is covering the story. Where does authority come from? God ordains the office. God prepares the men. God gets the men in the office. God directs the men. God requires us to submit to the men, and God tells us that fear and conscience toward Him is the basis for authority in this universe. If there isn't a preaching of God and the fear of God and the fear of authority, then this is all going to crumble because it is based on men having a conscience toward God that that man is the man God chose to put over us. Whether it's kids, a wife, a church, a nation, or a business. But if I'd made just a little bit of a different move back there when I was 15 years old, I'd have a different husband. If I'd done something just a little bit differently and taken another job offer that was made to me when I was 19 years old, I'd have a different master. That is water that is over the dam. It's under the bridge. It's gone. It doesn't matter. In God's providence, you made the choice, or God directed the events that put you where you are right now. All the rest of that is irrelevant. Right. All the rest of that is irrelevant. That is the providence of God. Listen, there's one being in this universe that I can take absolute confidence in. Amen. That's able to look at all servants, all masters, and get them together in exactly the right combination for the benefit of all, for the better of humanity, as long as they're obedient, and for His honor and glory, and Almighty God. That's right. And I believe that with all my heart, and there, is no, there are no exceptions to that case. Amen. Your parents, God arranged for you. You know how much influence you had in that selection. You say that they were pitiful parents. God made that choice. Fear Him and thank Him and honor them to the best of your ability. Right. And I know some of you had a more difficult situation than I did. A far more difficult situation than I did. What are the five spheres of authority? Do I even need to cover this point? I've got about 20 verses for each one. Everybody in here know what the five spheres of authority are? Parents, husband, master, pastor, or other religious leader, king, magistrates, civil authority. I'm not even going to look at all the references. Maybe we'll just grab one for each category and briefly look at them. 
Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 for men ruling over women. I mean, there's 20. We'll look at one. 1 Peter chapter 3, there are five spheres of authority. There are only five. Every other authority relationship is derived from these five because of delegating power. 1 Peter chapter 3, we've already read the first two verses, speaking of wives being in subjection to their own husbands. Verse 3, who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting out of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. You want to be a beautiful woman? God tells you how to be a beautiful woman. And it's not learning how to do your hair better, wearing gold better, or putting on a lot of changeable garments. It's the hidden woman of the heart which is not corruptible. Your beauty is going. Your beauty is going. Going faster every week. But there is an ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit that is not corruptible that you can still wear with honor and glory in old age. And it's what God says is beautiful and it's of great price. It's what will count when the physical beauty disappears. And that meek and quiet spirit is one of subjection to a husband in fear. It's a great part of it. Verse 5, where he's explaining it here. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. See, here's the adornment, or the ornament, that a woman ought to put on. It's not the hair, it's not the gold, it's not the clothes. It's the ornament of subjection. A relationship with a man works best through fear and subjection. You say, how can I win a man completely? Subject yourself to him. Worship him. Reverence him. You say, you, you sound like a Neanderthal. You know that Cro-Magnon man that you were ridiculing last Sunday evening? You're sounding like him more and more. This is the word of God. That ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit is one of subjection to husbands. And what Peter is saying here is, I'm not telling you something new. This is not something coming from me that's some new invention. Because holy women in other generations did the very same thing. Holy women also who trusted in God. Notice where their trust was. You say, well, if I subject myself to a man, like you're talking about, he'll take advantage of me. They trusted in God. The greatest check and balance on submitting yourself to anyone is that God will take care of you. Right. God will take care of you. You say, yeah, but he hasn't taken care of me as well as I've liked so far. Maybe you need to learn some more subjection first. Right. There's some purpose in it. Who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. These were beautiful women, because these women knew how to submit to a man, because God put the man over them. Even as, and here's an example of how far they went, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. You can be like Sarah, you can be like her daughters, as if you were trained by her, if you'll do well. And what's doing well in this passage? It's submitting to the man God put over you. You want to win a man? You want to win a man? Worship him. <clears throat> Obey him. Submit yourself to him. Follow him. Reverence him. Call him Lord. You say that? 
sounds too simplistic. Because you're a woman. That's what works. That is what God said works. Right. And a beautiful woman like Sarah knew how to do it. And God uses her as an example. You know what I'd be accused of right now in most places in this country? I'm a woman hater. I'm a woman hater. Am I a woman hater? Well, decide for yourself. But that's based on God's word. Who cares what? Yeah. Who cares what you think about me? This is the word of the Lord. You want to win a man? Submit yourself to him. You want to be beautiful? Do what this passage right here tells you to do. Right. Don't make it your hair. Don't make it your gold. Don't make it your clothes. Make it your spirit. Your spirit, you say, what's a meek and quiet spirit? It means this. Get down and submit yourself to your husband with all fear. Not answering again. Not talking back. Not balking. Not fighting. Not rebelling. Not holding back resentment. No passive rebellion. Not slamming the door. Not banging the cupboards in the kitchen. Not avoiding him. Not, not avoiding talking to him. Subjecting yourself to your husband. That's how you win a man. And that's how you please God. And that's how you do well. We'll get to the last part of verse 6 when we get to that point. The last part of verse 6 is not the emphasis of God's word. And anybody who likes to run the last part of verse 6 scares me. Because you know what they're doing? They're trying to cheat. Right. Somebody that takes a passage like 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, and one, runs with the one exception clause is telling me something about their heart. They want to know how quickly they can resist authority rather than submit to it. Sure. This is a glorious chapter. This is one of about 15 passages that we can look at this evening. There's one sphere of authority. Wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. If you're afraid of doing that, then trust in God. If you need an example, then look at Sarah. Let me remind you something about Sarah. Do you all remember when she called the Lord? You know, I had... When I first preached that, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6, I had some sister come to me and say, but wasn't that like back in England when they all they called all the ladies ladies and all the men were called lords? You know, my, my lord, my lady, my, my lady this, my, my lord that, and all. Wasn't that just formal language? Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Do you know when Sarah called Abraham Lord? When she was talking about her husband in her thoughts. Go back and read about it. In the book of Genesis, when Sarah called Abraham Lord, was in her thoughts about her husband. That is calling your husband Lord. Amen. Nature calls, son. Let's move to the second sphere of authority. Parents over children. What's a good text for this? Let's look at... Exodus 21. Exodus 21. There's so many to choose from, I just want to pick one this evening. Exodus 21. Every, every man in authority, every husband makes choices so many times, and women don't even think about it because all they can do is think about themselves. They don't know what it's like being a husband because husbands so many times are faced with a choice do I put my foot down here and maintain my authority, or do I give to maintain her affection? That choice is a horrible. Every master, everyone in authority knows exactly about that choice. And see, a woman doesn't know what it means, except a little bit with her kids. 
She does not know that that husband has to make that choice, and it's a terrible choice. He has to make a choice, do I put my foot down and force her to submit? Or do I simply back off on this, forget it, let it drop, and that way I can keep her happy with me and she can still smile at me and, you know, she'll not sleep in the living room tonight. Or whatever the case might be in a very sick marriage that that would ever happen in. That choice is the horrifying part of being a master. Every father faces it with kids. You know, you're in a public place like a church service. Your children do something and you walk by them and whisper, wait till you get home. And you get home and they've forgotten all about it. They're running around just being your joyful children. You're sitting there with that thing gnawing at you and listen. They do not know what it's like to be on the other side of it. That's right. All you fathers know about what I'm talking about. You know inside, what do I do? Do I just forget this thing? Or am I going to follow through and execute some judgment on my children to train them the way God's told me? And they do not understand the hurt, the pain of that decision. You know, I used to laugh. I know you've heard it too. You know, when my mother or my father would say to me, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I shouldn't roll my eyes. But you, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying. You don't, you don't believe that as a child because you've never been on the other side. And as soon as you get to the other side, now I can appreciate my parents about 1,000-fold right. over what I could when I was 13. That choice is difficult. And I'm preaching these messages for this purpose, that everyone in a position of authority, men, will not let things drop, but will exercise their authority. Once in a while, it's, it's nice to let things drop to show your mercy, but it's our job to keep the rule in our homes. That is the primary thing God tells us to do. Right. And we've got to do with our children. In Exodus 21, we've got just a couple of verses thrown in here about the way parents ought to, the way children ought to treat their parents. Remember, the emphasis in the Bible is not on how parents ought to treat their children, but on how children ought to treat their parents. That's what makes the relationship. Because once once you have teenagers, you can't really force. I mean, especially in our nation, that we could have in Israel. It's harder in our generation to force submission. There's got to be some voluntary cooperation, and that's secured by the preaching of this word and a whole lot of fear. But in Exodus 21, we read in verse 15, He that smiteth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now, I know there are some in here that have hit their parents. Now, you may not have, I know that there are some boys in here that when they were growing up, hit their father. You hit your father when God's in control and you die for it. Very simple. You die for it. Verse 17. He that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. You ever use language against your parents that was in the form of a curse? You ever say something evil against your father or your mother? You died for it. Capital punishment. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This is what God thinks about that second sphere of authority, and that is children toward their parents. We can look at many more. I've preached them before. We'll move on. Sphere number three. God has ordained priests, bishops, elders, pastors, judges to rule his people spiritually. Why don't we just look at Hebrews 13? I mean, there's a number of passages we could look at. I don't want this series to drag out forever, and I can take two Sundays just on looking at the verses that support these five spheres of authority. 
But let's look at Hebrews 13 to remind us that God's chosen men to govern the religious aspect of our lives. <clears throat> Husbands control marriages, parents control families, pastors, priests, judges, bishops control God's religious worship. Hebrews 13 and verse 7. Paul exhorts the Hebrew Christians, Remember them that have, which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Remember them which have the rule over you. God has chosen some in religious matters to be rulers. You say, that word's too strong for me. Then you're not as strong as God. Right. You're not thinking the way God thinks. This is the word God chose. God chose men to rule his congregations. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God and follow their faith, considering the end of their conversation, considering what they're responsible for and the burden that God has placed upon them to speak the truth and to rule properly. Look at verse 17. Same chapter, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. You say, but maybe I don't like that. Maybe I don't like you as our pastor. I didn't ask you to like me in this passage. I just ask you to submit to the office. Submit to the oversight of the man God's placed over you. You say, but you've changed. Put your trust in God then. If I've changed, put your trust in God and pray for God to change me again. If you think I'm in need of a change. The whole basis of authority is submission and trust in God. You bet I could change. I could be inviting you to Guyana, maybe, with pink Kool-Aid. Now, when we get to a place like that, you will have scripture because this congregation is taught, and Jim Jones's people were never taught. Right. This congregation is taught to exalt this word above any sphere of authority in this world. They were not taught that. And listen, there was a breakdown in what that man taught long before they ever left the shores of this nation. If you've ever looked into that situation at all. But up until there is a flagrant violation of this word, the word of God is, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Right. For they watch for your souls, as they must give account, that they may do with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Let me ask you, what's the four-letter word that comes out of that verse? What's the basis for submitting to your pastor? Because you love him or because you fear him? From that text. What is it? Fear. Why? Because that man is going to give an account to God. If he gives a good account, it will be for your profit. If he gives... An account with grief is going to be unprofitable for you. There's fear in that relationship. I can't take you home and put you over my knee like I would. I, would, I don't put you over my knee anyway. But I can't take you home and take the handle of my blinds off the wall and use that. I can't take away your car privileges if you were my wife for a month because you've been a bad wife. I can't fire you from your job like a master can. I can't execute you like a president or a king can. The office of a pastor is one of the most vulnerable and weakest in some respects of all, and it requires everyone to know the verses like this and to submit. Right. All I have is an appeal to God's word and some measure of rule through the power of the congregation. Verse 24, salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. Notice they had rulers. 
And I hope that everyone in here can see that it's based on fear and not love and respect. Because a minister has to give an account for all those under his care. And God knows which ones give him grief, and God knows which ones give him joy. Sphere number four. Let's look at Ephesians chapter six. What's sphere number four but masters and servants? Ephesians six. I went home last Sunday evening and I sat and I, I, I begged God to bring to my recollection how I had served my masters. I wish I could go back and do a better job. I've never been taught with the degree of emphasis you people have been taught. I wish I could go back and do better. In many respects, I think I did very well. But I remember some very obnoxious behavior on the part of one who doesn't naturally enjoy what he's preaching right now. But I hope all of you think about these things when you go off tomorrow and either be in the office of a master or a place of a servant to submit yourselves. Ephesians 6, verse 5, servant. Notice, this is the gospel. This is sanctification. You want to talk about practical holiness? Here are some aspects of it. That's right. These, these aspects of our lives in submission to God's word. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Whether you've hired yourself out and you're a free man or you're a bond servant, it doesn't matter. Do good service towards your master because of a conscience toward God. Notice the continual emphasis in here. It's God you're serving. It's God you're serving. Not with eye service for men. You're not doing it simply to be seen of men that you're a good employee. You're doing it for God. You're doing it for God. Over and over. As unto Christ, verse 5. As the servants of Christ, verse 6. To the Lord, verse 7. Receive of the Lord, verse 8. It's conscience toward God that makes a man a good employee. If it's conscience for the man, that's up and down. Some days you like it, some days you don't. Listen, conscience toward God will make you a good employee every day of the week. Right. If that is emphasized over and over and over again. You say, but I don't like my boss. You say, I made a mistake when I took this job. It doesn't matter. God providentially oversaw your mistake, and the man you work for right now is the man God wants you to submit to right now. And to do it this way, with fear and trembling, and to do good as unto the Lord. That's fear number four. And then there are kings, and I'd like to use Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24. We can look at a number of references. I, I want to choose this one here for the fifth fear of authority, and that's kings, presidents, queens, governments among men for nations or empires, political sphere of authority. Proverbs chapter 24. Before I read the verses I want from this chapter, I want to remind you of something. The spirit of American independence. The spirit of American independence is not from God. Right. The spirit of American independence is, I don't have to do anything that anyone tells me. Because I'm a free man, I am independent, 
I'm a self-made man, as one brother referred to this evening. I'm an individualist. Oh, and they love all those. I'm an individualist. And that is taught over and over and over again. You look at the heroes portrayed on our screens, and whatever they want to do, they do. It doesn't matter if they're flying Navy jets. They go and do things they're not supposed to do, flying past the towers, whatever it might be. They're always violating authority, and they're the heroes set up for our young people to emulate because that's the American way. We thumb our noses at authority. We threw off the king, and we can throw off anyone we want to. Well, let me read to you the Word of God and see what you think about this. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 21. My son, fear thou the Lord and the King, and meddle not with them that are given to change. For their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both? Fear the Lord and the King. They're together in God's opinion, because the king is established by the Lord. Fear the Lord and the king. The way that we truly fear the king best is to fear the Lord. It's conscience toward God. And meddle not with them that are given to change. That is not talking about someone who likes mint chocolate chip ice cream one week and is into fudge marshmallow ripple the next week. It is talking about men who want to throw off one form of government for another because they think they've got a better idea on how people can be governed. Because the context of these two verses is governmental authority. Right. Fear the Lord and fear the king and meddle not with them that are given to change. And there are books and there are seminars and there are ideas a dime a dozen in our nation on how to change authority structures in our country. And we are not to meddle with them. We are not to partake with them, listen to them, get involved in their activities. Many of us were involved in their activities in the past. Right. Meddle not with them that are given to change. I've never heard a good idea anyway, unless there's someone out there who's preaching a theocracy, and there's a few of them. But I want to say something about that. That isn't the form of government that, God, that God's given us. Meddle not with them that are given to change. Do you think God wanted the Israelites that were in Babylon to decide that they ought to have a theocracy and go out and assassinate Nebuchadnezzar? What were they to do for Nebuchadnezzar? Pray for him and submit to him. Listen, many of us in this congregation were involved in movements in the past that had as either a minor intent or objective or a major one to overthrow our government. Meddle not with them that are given a change. Fear the Lord and the King. I love the 22nd verse, for their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both? Who in the world gave you the intelligence to form a new form of government? Where did God call you to do that? God called us to submit. Fear the Lord and the King. There isn't a verse in the Word of God that tells us to overthrow the King. He said, oh, <laughs> But didn't Peter, and John, didn't Peter and John say we ought to obey God rather than men? Yes. And when you can no longer worship, and you, there's a law that says you cannot assemble with this body, you go ahead and assemble, but that still doesn't mean you march on Washington to shoot the president. Right. <clears throat> or stop paying taxes to overthrow the government by depriving it of its financial means. The very God 
that supported men saying we ought to obey God rather than men to preach the gospel was the same God that provided coins for <coughs> fish's mouth to pay taxes. That's right. Meddle not with them that are given to change. Brethren, let's submit God, the government we have right now, listen, it's too good for us. I don't care what faults it has, it's too good for us. This nation deserves a whole lot worse than we have. Right. We should fear it and submit to it and pray for it. That's what God has told us to do. First Peter chapter 2 tells us, let, let me just give you some examples of delegated authority. First Peter chapter 2 tells us the king is supreme and governors are sent by him. We have governors. It's not exactly the way that the, the Bible knew of a governor, but we've got governors, we've got mayors, we've got local representatives, we've got local policemen, we've got local commissioners, and so forth. They are delegated positions of authority that derive their power from the king. They do come back to a sphere of authority that God set up. We have centurions and other military officers, whether it be the Roman army or our army. We have officers of military power. They derive their power from a centralized government, even in our government. Kings may appoint tax collectors. You know, somebody says, well, the IRS wasn't authorized by the Constitution. Big deal. Big deal. It's the authorized agency of the U.S. government to collect taxes. It's accepted by the entire nation, except a few radicals who want to violate Proverbs 24, verses 21 through 22. Right. It is the revenue-collecting arm of our nation. I don't care if it's got a constitutional basis or not. It is the accepted revenue arm of our nation. God has never called servants to hold their masters in check. You say what the Constitution did. The Constitution went out of this nation years ago. Right. Years right. ago. Those men! are called to uphold it. God has not called us to meddle with those that are given to change. There has been a change in our government. It used to be a God-fearing government. And while it still grants us a lot of liberties, it is changing. That's right. It should be changing a whole lot faster. Except God's being merciful to us. Kings appoint all of those. You fight against any one of those, you're running straight in the teeth of Romans chapter 13. It says, every Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, but there is no power but of God. And it goes right on to describe their revenue collecting means of giving tribute to whom tribute is due, custom due, and so forth. The powers that be are ordained of God. I don't care how they arrive, by constitutional right or by constitutional encroachment. You want to talk about constitutional rights? Do you know what every Jew had in Israel? The constitutional right of the Old Testament. Do you know what that Old Testament said? Kill every Roman you meet. What did the constitution of the Old Testament say? Destroy all your enemies utterly. That was their constitution, the Old Testament. Guess what? God ordained a power to supersede that in a form of judgment. It first of all began with the Babylonians, then it was the Persians, then it was the Greeks, with that little horn Antiochus Epiphanes abusing the Jewish nation, and then the Roman government came in and took over. And notice what Paul was writing about. When Paul was writing in Romans chapter 13, he wasn't writing about the Jewish leadership. He was writing about the pagan Caesar on a throne in Rome that had delegated centurions and governors over Palestine. And he said, the powers that be are ordained of God, and they were foreign usurpers! If there was ever a right to throw off the government, the Jews had it. I love the New Testament. Amen. Give me a coin. I love these people who don't want to pay their taxes. You know what they all use? Well, I don't believe in the 
income tax because it's not constitutional. But do you know how they all make their living? With Federal Reserve notes, which isn't constitutional either. Right. If Jesus would hear, he'd say, show me a note. And you'd pull out a note, and he'd hold it up right in your face, and he'd say, see, this is an encroachment of the Constitution. This is a violation of the Constitution, and you're using it to get yourself fat and happy. Therefore, pay that system. It's that simple. Amen. God has done these things in our nation. We are now under a Federal Reserve system. We're under a progressive income tax system, and we still can be fat and happy. That's right. They're delegated authority from kings. Masters may have supervisors or other domestic officers. Remember, in Genesis 39, Potiphar appointed Joseph to be over all that he had. He was a delegated servant, but he had servants under him. He was a delegated position of authority from a master. Pastors may have deacons to assist him in certain aspects of the service and care of a church. Fathers may appoint tutors, governors, or other servants. As Galatians chapter 4 describes, a teacher, a piano teacher, a school teacher, is an appointed tutor or a governor appointed by the Father. Galatians chapter 4 just assumes that as an illustration of delegated authority. Husbands may delegate some of their authority to their wives in their absence in order to rule their children properly. All authority is derived from those five spheres. Those five spheres are not the ideas of men. No council ever sat down with wise and learned men and came up with these five ideas of authority. This is the wisdom of God. Amen. And if we would submit to it and love it and learn it and consider it and talk about it in our homes and teach it to our children and beat it into their minds, this is the basis for successful living. Absolute fear and respect and reverence for authority in the five spheres that God created. It's not love and respect. Love and respect won't get it all the time. Right. Because sometimes you don't love, and sometimes you don't respect, and it's got to be fear. Right. Listen, it may sound like I love our government. <laughs> all you got to do is ask me in private what I think of the Federal Reserve System, and I'll try not to use a railing accusation against our government, but I, I don't like it. Anybody who knows me knows that, but it's the one God gave us, and it's the one we'll use. And it's the one we'll be content under. Right. And it's the one we'll submit to. And it's the one we're going to pray for. Amen. As the Lord blesses us. How can I expect my children to submit to me? I'm not, I'm not a perfect father. I'm a forward father sometimes. Unless I'm willing to submit to forward forms of government. Like a fractional reserve banking system as we have in our nation. We didn't cover as much as I wanted to this evening. I hope you'll consider these things. Can you sit in your homes and talk about them? In the car on the way home tonight, you know, the Bible says to speak of these things when thou risest up, when thou sittest down, when thou walkest by the way. This is the word of the Lord. This is for the profit of our families. Right? As you travel home tonight, as you, as you live this week, let us inculcate these things into the minds of our children, into the minds of our wives, into our own minds. And brother, every man here has a responsibility. How can we expect our wives and our children to submit to us, as has been described briefly tonight, if we're not willing to submit to pastors, masters, and magistrates? Right. The words of our lips should be in reverence and esteem and honor. We should not answer again. We should submit cheerfully and willingly, because if a wife or a child sees us stabbing the pastor in the back, stabbing their master in the back, 
speaking evil of their government, what right do we have to expect them to treat us any differently? That's right. We have a responsibility, and it's a weighty one. May God bless us to fulfill it honorably. Amen. May Jesus Christ be praised.